We don't know the future, but we don't know the present either because we don't have timely current data about the current state of the economy. Niels Bohr, the Danish physicist, once said, prediction is very difficult, especially about the future. I'm your host, Carly Sheridan, and in today's episode of Women in Economics, we'll be exploring not only why we make economic predictions, but how we can get better at them. Now look, Bohr was, by all accounts, an incredibly intelligent person. He was a philosopher, a champion of scientific research, and as a physicist, he made massive contributions to our understandings of the structure of atoms and the radiation that emits from them, the latter of which won him the Nobel Prize in 1922. But what Bohr didn't have access to was the mass landscape of knowledge and information sitting at our fingertips today. Advancements in big data, statistics, and modeling have not only made predictions easier to make, they've also become more reliable. Today's guest, economist Lucrezia Reichlin, is not only a pioneer of what we now call big data, she has devoted much of her career to answering big, broad questions, and in doing so, has altered how we view the economy and how different pieces of it interoperate. She uses that knowledge, her skills, and a sense of curiosity to help us better predict what tomorrow may bring from an economic perspective. You've had an extremely impressive and varied career, but let's rewind first. How did you end up where you are today? I started my career in research in econometrics. So my concern was more about modeling, trying to understand from data the characteristics of business cycles, So trying to understand from the data what explains the fact that sometimes we have recessions, uh, which are bad times, as everybody knows, unfortunately. And to really understand from data, build models that could be useful for this understanding. At the beginning, the concern of my research was quite abstract, but uh, I was one of the pioneers of what is now known as big data. So trying to see What can we learn from a large quantity of data? Models used to be small, empirical models in economics, especially macroeconomics, were based on a handful of series. And we started thinking with my co-authors, what if we use more data, regional data, individual data, and what can we learn? Is it just noise or there is also something that we can learn from that? And of course, when you ask those questions, you are confronted with the problem of complexity, okay? Because, uh, you know, data are messy, they're very volatile. So you have to find models which are sufficiently simple so that you can still learn something from this complex data set, uh, but extract a meaningful signal. And then the question is, uh, what happens to the signal as you add the data? And those are fairly theoretical questions, but very soon they lead you to practical questions about models that are useful for policymakers. I actually try to design models that can be used for policymaking and for understanding in a timely way the current state of the economy using a lot of data. This led you to not only consulting for banks, but working with central banks and ultimately becoming the Director General of Research at the European Central Bank, or the ECB. Were you asking yourself the same types of questions as you transitioned to this prestigious role? That was a 
big turning point in my career because when I joined there, I had to deal with a much more broader set of questions. And, you know, monetary policy was an important part of what we did for the policymakers as the research group, but also trying to understand the strategy. So I did some work on the strategy, on the role of money, on reviewing the strategy of the CB at the time, and the relation between the financial sector and the macroeconomy. I'm sure you've explained monetary policy, fiscal policy, and the difference between the two more times than you could count. But would you mind terribly explaining them one more time for the sake of this conversation? Monetary policy is the use of mostly the interest rate tools. Central banks uh, are using much more tools to stabilize the business cycle, but mostly to stabilize inflation. And so these days, uh, at least since the 90s, uh, Central banks have become independent institutions. They are part of the state, but they are independent institutions which have a very clear mandate, which is a mandate of inflation stability, price stability. It seems very simple because price stability is just one goal, but it's actually quite complex because the economy is hit by shocks of various kinds from the financial sector, from the foreign sectors, there are capital flows. And uh, so all this affects the real economy. When the real economy moves, price moves as well, trying to understand a lot of what happens in the economy in order to stabilize inflation. This is what uh, monetary policy does. Fiscal policy is, of course, related to monetary policy, but it is implemented by different agents, typically the government. Fiscal policy has the broad goal of stabilizing the economy as well, but also more broadly is concerned with financing the state and, you know, using uh, taxes in different ways in order to finance the state. Throughout your career, have you seen a shift or evolution in terms of how these policies are used? When I started uh, in monetary policy, it was clear that uh, the central bank had one instrument, the short-term interest rate, and then that was it was supposed to do in order to achieve its target. After the crisis, they are now using uh, different tools, like, for example, asset purchases, what is called quantitative easing, or special loans to banks, so different instruments. So it has become a very interesting area not only for policy, but also for research, because we are really experimenting with a new set of tools. It must have been quite something to be at the ECB, working with big data, trying to build more predictive models, and then to live through the financial crash. I was there until uh, September 2008, which, you know, is what changed the world, at least the world in our profession. And uh, at that point, by an incredible coincidence, uh, I decided to go back to academia. Reichlin didn't just go back to academia, she continued her quest to create models to better forecast the economy. It was a combination of trying to understand the characteristics of business cycles, why events like recessions take place, and how to prepare for the impacts that follow these disruptive events that led her to co-found Nowcasting. Her company monitors macroeconomic conditions in economies around the world and offers high-frequency, short-term forecasts of the major economies in real time. They measure specific macroeconomic indicators, including employment statistics, consumer surveys, and production and sales data. 
In her own words, Reichland has described this type of data analysis as a way to gauge the pulse of the economy. Now, casting is a child of research uh, that I did on big data. So in trying to see what kind of parsimonious models uh, we can use, still exploiting uh, the data-rich environment, so all the data that are available, the product of that work was to find that there were models that were very well for the economic cycle, because although you could exploit a lot of data, you could also impose simplicity in this model, exploiting the fact that during business cycle, all the variables co-move, okay? When consumption goes up, income goes up, investment goes up, and when it goes down, they all move down. So that means that uh, you can design models which uh, actually capture these co-movements. What uh, we did is to develop an algorithm that could identify important factors that could update these factors in relation to the data flow. So every day, there is something that is published. Markets look at the Bloomberg calendar and constantly update their view in relation to what's going on. This is what our algorithm does. It basically mimics the market. These models now have become the standard uh, in central banking, but also for financial investors. In fact, I have a company that produces that for financial investors and we update every 15 minutes. Uh, uh, so every 15 minutes, you can see how the economy moves. And what is interesting is that you can track your revisions. As soon as something moves, everything else moves, of course, because everything is connected. Our model tracks that general interaction between all these data. Now casting means forecasting of the present. We don't know the future, but we don't know the present either because we don't have timely current uh, data about the current state of the economy. But uh, when you track uh, information at such high frequency, you can also see that there are periods in which you make a lot of mistakes. And you can learn from these mistakes. It's like early signal about uh, what's going on. And this is becoming extremely important. And I think this research has been quite influential in the sense that now a lot of people are doing these kind of models. I love what you said about how we don't really know the present because it's so true. We are often focused on the future. We don't understand the past either. Could some of this data not be used long term as well? It can, but the problem is that the long term doesn't move that much. There is one thing that people don't know about forecasting that, for example, if you take GDP, there is very little forecastability beyond one quarter. So we could use models I describe up to one quarter ahead to get some kind of forecastability. But no models can do better than to say tomorrow is going to be like yesterday. My current research is about looking at data which are very much dominated by trend. Like, for example, inflation has very stable trend and trying to see whether we could kind of extract the trend and separate it from more fast-moving component. Inflation has a trend which is dominated by expectation. This is very much what central banks can influence by saying, we want inflation to be at 2%. I'm trying to look at model which disentangle trend from cycles, this kind of faster-moving component which is related to this lack of the economy, because this is something that policy can do something about. 
If there is a relation between inflation and the output gap, you can accurately try to govern this trade-off through some policy tools. So we're trying to build a model in which we extract these different components, try to separate them to see if the data allows us to extract this kind of unobserved signal. My job is to look at inflation, model it with other data and try to see if I can extract components which move at different speed so that then we could have an understanding of the dynamics underlying what we observe. And this would be a longer term. What do you mean when you say these forecasts, be it short or longer term, are judgment-free? Now casting, it's like a data provider. There is no judgment to have a machine that runs by itself. I don't touch it. Now, of course, the machine can be wrong at times, but the human brain can also be wrong at times. I think it's important to separate what the machine is telling you from your judgment. You want to have a machine that you don't touch because if you're touching your machine, then you don't know anymore what is your judgment and what the data are telling you. So I think judgment is unavoidable in all institutions and it gives you the pulse. What to do with it is a different story. Would you humor me and make some predictions to close us out? Like how worried do you think Europeans should be about another financial crisis? The financial system is more robust today than it was in 2008. But I think today the big risk in Europe is not so much for these banks, but for its public debt. The problem is not the public debt itself, because you have uh, countries which work with worse public debt, but is what it means for the cohesion of the union. I don't think a monetary union can last if there is no willingness to find consensual solutions. Our fiscal rules have been played in a wrong way during the heights of the crisis. We are not in that situation anymore. There is ample room to negotiate. So it's just a question of political willingness. So what should be the thing to keep in mind if you're on the policy side of things? Especially if you're on the policy side, okay, the question is to anticipate the next event, not just to look at the last crisis. We're still thinking and trying to understand the last crisis. We should try to understand now what would be the characteristic of the new crisis. Do you have any predictions for the field of economics itself? Where do you see the field in, say, 10 years' time? In my generation, there was much more emphasis in mathematics than there is today. We were trained on rigorous models. I think, fortunately, the field has become more empirical, more looking at data uh, in a very eclectic way. Uh, a lot of research in economics now is at the boundary with uh, political science uh, or even psychology, uh, you know, a lot of experiment. Also, there is come back of economic history, which I think it's important because uh, we learn from the past <laughs> and that is quite obvious. Uh, it's the literature on growth, for example, very much relies on economic history, understanding why bad performance are persistent, why institutions are persistent, why some countries are better institutions than others, and why we cannot learn how to adapt to a good institution where there are bad institutions where we cannot because there are complex historical reasons for that. I think that the future will be more interdisciplinary and I think this is true in general. Join us next week for a crash course on the Asian market. 
Women in Economics is brought to you by UBS and the Center for Economic Policy Research, CEPR. It's hosted by me, Carly Sheridan, produced and sound engineered by Zoo Agency Berlin, with music provided by Artlist. Help us usher in this new era of economics by sharing the episode with a friend, relative, or colleague, and be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The featured persons and the Center for Economic Policy Research are not affiliated with UBS. This presentation is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice or the basis for making any investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed may not be those of UBS. UBS does not verify and does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of the information presented.